Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. As a special episode, this month we're pleased to bring you a panel discussion on home health from a recent Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit Spotlight episode. The panel is titled, The Evolving Site of Care Landscape and the New Frontier of Care at Home, and was moderated by Ellen Herlacher, Principal at LRV Health. Please visit DHIS.net for more information on the Spotlight episode or the DHIS conferences. Now we'll kick things off. Over to Ellen. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. Uh, I'm Ellen Herlacher from LRV Health, and I'll be moderating the panel portion of today's presentation. Uh, This panel will continue to build on the topic of home health and explore what the emerging landscape looks like by speaking directly with the founders of some of the leading home and virtual health companies. Uh, We feel very lucky to have this group of healthcare entrepreneurs with us today. Uh, I'll quickly introduce the panel and then give everyone a moment to introduce themselves and give some background on their companies. So before I get started, I wanna make sure I can see everyone. It looks like everyone's here. So um, in no particular order, we've got Chris McCann, uh, who's CEO and co-founder of Current Health. We've got Rami Karjan, CEO and co-founder of Medically Home. Uh, Vijay Kadar, CEO and co-founder of Tomorrow Health. And Stephanie Talenius, CEO and founder of Vita Health. Um, So maybe we'll get started with Chris and wondering if you could give us a minute or two on yourself and on current health. Sure. Thanks, Ellen. Hey, everyone. Um, My name's Chris. I'm current health CEO and co-founder. The the first thing you'll notice is I have this crazy weird accent. Um, I'm not an American. I know it's hard to tell. Uh, I'm originally from Scotland in the UK um, uh, and currently trapped back here in, in Edinburgh at the moment. My background's in computer science and then medicine. I set Current Health up in 2015 when I was a med student at the time. Our aim is to try and be the almost mission control for healthcare delivery outside of the hospital. We try and serve as the single point of insight into patient health at home using continuous vital sign monitoring and other contextual health data to try and identify patient risk and enable early intervention at scale at home. We work with a number of the largest healthcare systems and pharmaceutical organizations in the United States. So we have the privilege of of working at the intersection almost of of decentralized healthcare and decentralized clinical research with organizations like AstraZeneca, Geisinger, Mount Sinai, to really bring more healthcare into the home, improve patient and community health, and try and bring down cost. So thank you for the invite, Ellen, and lovely to be with you all today. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Rami, can you tell us about yourself and Medically Home? Thank you, everybody. Rami Karjan, lovely to to be here. Uh, One of three co-founders of Medically Home. Um, Like my co-founders, I'm I'm an engineer, um, and we took an engineering lens at looking at home how home could be a very disruptive place to do high acuity care. Um, So we started off this journey almost 10 years ago with our clinical trial um, of how do you take patients who would otherwise be in a hospital for four or five days um, and provide all of the care in their home uh, that they would otherwise receive in that hospital and all the care for roughly a 30-day period 
um, in total that substitutes for the um, sniff care and the readmissions and the ED visits that they would otherwise have found for that high acuity uh, population. And we're delighted to see all of the emphasis that the, that home is taking um, and to do our part to provide a platform for systems like Mayo and Adventist Health to be able to provide high acuity care in the home for serious and complex patients. Thanks a lot, Rami. Um, Vijay, why don't you tell us about yourself and Tomorrow Health? Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you. Uh, Vijay Kedar, co-founder and CEO here at Tomorrow Health. Uh, prior to founding Tomorrow, I had been a healthcare investor and spent a number of years building the early team at Oscar Health, a technology Ford health insurer in the space. I founded Tomorrow Health uh, a couple of years ago, driven by a personal experience that I had had uh, with some of the challenges we faced in managing my mother's home-based care. And at Tomorrow Health, uh, our vision is to restore the home as a patient's primary point of care. Uh, we do so as a platform to coordinate the medical equipment, supplies, and support that patients need to manage post-acute episodes or chronic conditions in a home-based setting. We bring together technology, operations, and personalized service to streamline that journey from the hospital to the home. Today, we're fortunate to be partnered with over 125 leading health plans and hospital systems at the regional and national level to coordinate the home-based care for their members. Excited to be here with all of you and for the discussion. Thanks, Vijay. Uh, and then Stephanie, uh, last but not least, tell us about yourself and Vita Health. Well, it's great to be here this morning. Thank you for including me. Uh, my background is largely in uh, technology. I was at eBay and Google and PayPal for a long time and then founded Vita because my father had multiple chronic conditions. So he was living with CHF, COPD, diabetes, obesity, and depression. And I was really looking for a continuous care solution. So Vita is uh, continuous care for chronic disease, both physical and mental health. And we're working with large employers and payers. So for example, like Boeing and Cisco, our customers and large payers like Florida Blue and Centene, where we go in and we take their members and employers and we help those individuals that are living with diabetes, depression, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and we'll help them. Uh, we give them remote patient monitoring. We give them a diabetes educator, a nutritionist, a therapist, um, We'll put them in a program like a cognitive behavioral therapy program or a diabetes program. And over time, what you'll see is uh, with the remote patient monitoring, the devices and the care of a human, the human care of a provider, uh, we end up really changing the, the landscape for them dramatically. So we'll lower their A1C by over a point, we'll take them off their meds, uh, we will reduce their depression by 70%. So we're really trying to get at the root drivers and help them manage these conditions in the home uh, through virtual care as opposed to going to their doctor or the ER visit that is unnecessary. Thank you. Um, and actually, thank you to everyone for thorough but brief intros. Uh, it gives us some time to really get into the uh, meat and potatoes of the discussion. Um, a quick housekeeping announcement. Um, please do continue to share Q&A with us throughout the uh, discussion. Um, we'll have some time at the end. So uh, if we don't get to your question right away, it's not because we're ignoring it. We'll have some time toward the end. Um, but in terms of this discussion, I wanted to start things off with a little context on why we're talking about home health today. Uh, you know, if you think about the arc of healthcare delivery and you go back 100 years, uh, the majority of healthcare was delivered in the home. And then you had, you had doctors, nurses, midwives, 
making house calls and the hospital was really a place that you went to die. But since then, we've seen this major centralization of care um, where you go to the hospital or the clinic to receive care, you get well, and then you go home. However, what's emerging today, and I think what we're all discussing today, is this migration of care back into the community where the objective is to keep people out of facilities and manage their health at home. And so my first question is, what are some of the trends that are causing this repatriation to the home? Um, and maybe Rami, would you want to get us started off? Sure. I think there's two things that, that we're seeing. Um, one is a broader trend that we've seen sort of in the economy around just decentralization and sort of Amazon and others led the charge. Uh, and that caused the consciousness among consumers that it is better when it comes to me. Uh, and so a lot of what's happening now is how can care come to the home, come to an environment where patients and their family can interact in a very different way with their caregivers and, and meet them where they are. And that charge, again, led by you know, Amazon and others now coming to healthcare. Uh, the second point is I think this has all been catalyzed, uh, frankly, by COVID uh, and a very dramatic change of perception among patients and their family of a hospital. Uh, and a desire to stay out of institutional sites of care and to stay out of a hospital um, and hospitals as being, you know, scary places for them. And if they can get that care in the home, um, that's something that now because of COVID is very appealing and we don't think, frankly, is going to change um, anytime soon. And maybe, um, you know, I'll put this out to the broader group. What are some of the kind of financial or regulatory tailwinds that might be kind of pushing care outside of a facility? I mean, I think we saw from 2018 CMS, if we look at remote patient monitoring, specifically as an example, you know, started to introduce better reimbursement in 2018, it increased it even more so in 2019. And then in 2020, you know, pre-COVID, um, designated it as a care management service and, and allowed it to be done in an, an operationally scalable way. So I think it started to create a greater financial incentive within RPM. But I think that that's just part of a wholesale shift. Um, you know, everyone talks about value-based reimbursement, but the reality is most healthcare still fee-for-service. You know, definitely seeing more, um, particularly commercial plans, look at, at value-based uh, or shared savings programs. But CMS has still been pushing more uh, quality-based or value-based incentives like the hospital readmission reduction program, even through things like, like moving um, inpatient payments to bundled payments. And all of this drives a, a bigger focus on quality of care, faster exit from the hospital, more almost longitudinal concern for the patient at, at home. Um, and I think that will continue. Obviously, the latest change has been the, the acute care at home program, which was more of a, a regulatory waiver than a, a change in reimbursement, but you know, hugely incentivizes a replacement almost of hospital level care. Got it. And maybe, Chris, if we stick with you um, and get a little bit more specific on what we're talking about, like who is being treated or monitored in the home today? that may have received care or resided in a facility previously? So I think, and, and Rami touched on this as well, I, I think you know, telemonitoring telehealth has been going on for decades. Like there was literally a piece in The Lancet in 1879 
talking about using ECG or, or sort of like ECG back then to, to try and diagnose the patient. So like this isn't new, but I think that, you know, 20 years ago, up until recently, telemonitoring was focused on like long-term chronic care, supporting an episodic model of healthcare delivery. So, you know, you had long-term chronic monitoring of hypertension or, or new onset diabetes, you know, relatively low risk patients. It wasn't really changing the healthcare model still really being delivered around the office visit in the hospital. I think what we're seeing now is actually let's manage these super complex, high acuity, high risk patients entirely within the home. Let's almost wholesale replace or start to replace what is being done centralized within the hospital within the patient's own home instead. Uh, you know, places like oncology, you know, we are seeing focus from both biopharma, the payers and the health system to take um, immuno-oncology therapies, for instance, which have historically only been delivered in the hospital and let's deliver them safely within the patient's own home through a combination of better clinical models, through a combination of better technology. Um, and you know that's not the way telemonitoring was being done 20 years ago. That's replacing the hospital with uh, healthcare at home. And, and that to me is a huge cultural shift from, from what's been done in the past. Got it. So I think what I'm hearing is that there there had been some uh, processes and technologies applied in this way previously, but the paradigm has completely shifted within the last five to ten years. So, and, and maybe Stephanie, can you help us understand what are some of the tech and business models that are enabling this paradigm shift? Well, I think in general, what you're seeing with COVID, it, you know, let's let's just step back for a second and look at COVID as an accelerant. So, before COVID, uh, telemedicine was single digit as a percentage of total medicine total visits, uh, and now, I think it was in May of 2020, telemedicine went to like 60% of visits. There was no choice. Now it's back down to like 20 or 30%, but we're not going back. I mean, people are really comfortable on Zoom as we are on today. Uh, you know, we're seeing people embrace this notion of, of using virtual care and it's, it's much more convenient. It's easier to access. They don't have to drive. They're getting high quality care. And what you're seeing is CMS is now reimbursing equally for virtual care than, than, and physical in-person care. So uh, therapy, which we do, is fully reimbursed now. And so you're seeing Medicare now reimbursed for it. You're seeing trends that people are embracing this notion that virtual care is equivalent and it's more convenient. And there's also um, a, an access issue across the country. And so virtual care is enabling everyone to get access. So I think uh, we're not going back, we're only going forward, and legislation is now <laughs> realizing that this is uh, an equivalent form and should be reimbursed equally. And that you're seeing reimbursement for like remote patient monitoring and in the home and things like that that are now acceptable. And then you're seeing a move to value-based care where all the physicians are now being held accountable for getting outcomes and they want to have a value-based approach to their patients. So they want them to take care of themselves in between doctor visits and use digital tools to do that. And Ellen, I think just building on Stephanie's point on, on that driver, what we're also starting to see is that care is not equivalent to the care in a hospital, but because it's happening in the home, because you're arbitraging the fixed cost of the hospital, you're getting better care. Um, so a lot of the clinical trials that um, you know, Bruce Leff and others at Hopkins have led on this show a, a 20 to 40% decrease in mortality, separate from readmission rate reductions and post-acute utilization reductions. So 
this ability that, you know, collectively we found to bring care, especially high acuity care into the home, to make it more convenient to generate better financial outcomes and to generate better clinical outcomes. It's not just the same care as in the hospital, but now in the home, it's actually better care. And maybe Rami, let's stick with that. You know, can you kind of break down areas where they're specifically where the areas are within the home to provide, uh, a, I'd say, better outcomes and a better experience? We've talked about this in the past by just kind of seeing a patient in their home environment, but maybe talk a little bit about, you know, specifically where those pockets of opportunities to really improve the experience and the outcomes. Yeah, I think it's driven from two places. One is when you're in the home, you don't have the ticking clock of all of the fixed costs of a hospital, which can be $1,500 a day, putting pressure on the clinicians to let's go, let's go, let's go. So you're with the patient for a longer period of time, uh, and you're providing more care over that longer period of time. The second point, and there's been a lot of great discussions recently about social determinants of health. When the clinicians that are caring for the patient during that acute episode or other episodes are in the home with the patient, seeing how they live, seeing how they interact with their family, seeing the choices that they're making, they're able to give them more informed guidance to help them make better choices. And a lot of that is attacking the fundamentals of the social determinants of health that is sort of making this powerful and sort of linking, in our, in our view, linking acute care to the social determinants in a very powerful way because you're in the home, you're living with the patient. That's right. Thank you, Rami. And, and maybe Vijay, you know, we just heard Stephanie make um, a pretty bold prediction that uh, we're, we're not going back. We're only going forward. Uh, home health and virtual health is only expanding. You know, could you help us illustrate what does that actually look like three years out, five years out, 10 years out? Um, and, you know, and what does the distribution look like ultimately between what we're doing in the home versus what's left in the facility? Um, you know, it, it, should it be as stark as only ICU type of care in a facility? Or do we still think there's kind of a mix between home, ambulatory, hospital? Yeah. You know, I think in so many ways, it's an extension and an augmentation of the paradigm shift that Chris, Rami, and Stephanie just mentioned, right? I think if you think about the beginning of the unbundling of care that started five, 10 years ago, the focus was really on, you know, how do you reduce uh, additional inpatient bed days at the end of an acute care journey? Home health was seen at the end of the care continuum. We would shift patients from acute care to post-acute care and see, okay, can we discharge them one or two days earlier? And in many ways, the overarching intention of that was uh, cost savings, was reducing inpatient uh, bed days and, and the costs associated with that. I think the overarching paradigm shift that we're seeing, as has been referenced, is actually a fundamental remodeling of what the home as a care setting can represent. And rather than being at the end of a patient's journey and at the end of a care continuum, actually being seen as the center of that journey. And that has shifted thinking to say, okay, what are the tools and resources that can enable that? We went from saying, you know, being in a situation, you know, four years ago in the U.S. where only 2% of Americans, 4.5 million Americans had received some kind of home health. That, of course, has dramatically changed now. We've expanded beyond that being, you know, lower acuity uh, types of episodes. We've expanded beyond telemedicine virtual care being used for purely episodic uh, instances of, of triage or diagnosis 
towards the really the full spectrum being covered at home, right? And so where we go from here in the next three, five, 10 years, uh, I expect to see is a, is a deeper embrace of that uh, from uh, folks across the ecosystem. And, and that's what we're seeing right now, right? Uh, you know, walking through each of those stakeholders, right? From a patient standpoint, uh, the desire to have care at home, the centralization that Rami mentioned is a very natural one. Um, you know, we see it among the senior demographic with 90% of senior citizens desiring to age in place. We're seeing it with middle-aged and younger folks who have come uh, acclimated to an environment in which they can take a bit more control over their care in their own hands, whether it's management of a chronic condition with the devices and the medications that are necessary for that or post-acute recovery. Um, from a provider side, we've seen meaningful adoption of the shift to the home and the technologies that enable it. Um, you know, my, my father is a, is a cardiologist and uh, was one of the many physicians who for decades had been you know, fairly averse to, to telemedicine. Uh, but you know, with the COVID pandemic, he, like many others, adopted it and found uh, it, it actually uh, is, a, is, in many ways, a much more efficient way for him to engage with patients. And I think that uh, provider adoption uh, is not going to change, right? And so it brings us to the last piece, which is some of the institutional stakeholders that drive the systemic change on a longitudinal basis. And that's, uh, you know, those that pay for care, right? We talked a bit about Medicare and Chris touched on, you know, some of the many uh, changes that have been made during the COVID period alone. We've seen 80 uh, Medicare uh, regulatory uh, changes and additions. They moved incredibly swiftly to adapt to this new dynamic. But we've also seen that translate down to commercial and, and, and government payers. Um, we've seen that with uh, many folks starting to pay you know, for virtual care services at parity. Uh, then it's been incentivizing care with the shift to the home with, with payment for value, as others have recognized. But it's also been a more holistic embrace of partnerships uh, that orient their care delivery networks more effectively and more deliberately towards the home. Uh, that's certainly a trend that we've seen at Tomorrow Health with significant uh, interest and demand from payer partners to be thinking a bit more strategically around how they can provide home-centric network options for their patients going forward. So I think as you see those pieces continue to fall in place, this trend is only going to grow stronger in three, five, and 10 years. That's great. And I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. I interrupted someone. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I just, I, I love the point that VJ and Chris made about CMS. And I think just um, to just acknowledge the role that they played in, in moving fast with so much else going on to enable this care. Um, the, the acute care in the home that Chris referenced, uh, now I think as of Friday, CMS announced they had uh, 103 hospitals, 44 systems, 28 states that had applied for those, those waivers. And just hats off to CMS for really getting ahead of this and enabling this and, and basically helping to catalyze this movement into the home. I think it's just fantastic. And, and maybe if we kind of stick with those points, if, you know, if we just kind of take it as a given that there's at least a core of consumers that prefer to be treated at home, uh, but then start to examine the other two stakeholders that VJ mentioned. So the payers and the providers, how do they need to reorganize themselves in order to support uh, more care at home? So what does that mean from a staffing standpoint, from a technology standpoint, 
from a compliance standpoint, how, you know, what additional capabilities and competencies do they need to bring on board for this to actually become a reality? Because it is quite complex. I mean, I think for the payers, this makes complete sense. I mean, one third of American healthcare spending is on the hospital. So, you know, just fiscally trying to move more care home is a radically lower cost setting than the hospital. So I think for the payers, it's it's obvious. I think for the hospitals, it's, and actually I'd say there's another group after this, it's, it's the hospitals and then it's the providers within the hospital, nurses and physicians as a separate group. I think it's a huge cultural shift because firstly, the hospitals have seen themselves as just that, a hospital, a place where they centrally deliver healthcare. And now they are having to see themselves as um, almost a, a, a deliverer of healthcare across the community on a longitudinal basis to a much larger population and be involved much more frequently and often and care about the patient almost preventively rather than just on an episodic or procedural basis. So there's, there's firstly a shift in how hospitals see themselves and you know we see health systems building more um, home-based clinical services, setting up more, almost taking an EICU and doing that out across the community. But then I also think there's a shift in the providers and the nurses and care managers and all of the staff who work within within um, within the hospital. And you know, at a basic level, I think a lot of them right now are just trying to get through the day and deliver safe care. So they, they listen to people talking about these wholesale shifts and how healthcare is delivered. And I think a lot of them say, you know, this sounds great, but I'm just trying to physically deliver safe care to my patients. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's a, right now the, the greatest area of jobs growth is within healthcare. And we still are not going to have enough staff to, to manage all the patients that, that we're going to have. So either we start training five times the number of doctors and nurses and building 20 more hospitals you know, every day, or we recognize we're going to have to do this differently and we're going to have to bring physicians and nurses along on that journey and make them part of it um, and also recognize that they're firefighting every day at the same time and it makes it really difficult for them to be asked um, to go through that that cultural shift simultaneously. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree. I think that we need to, there's, you know, there's a limited number of physicians, there's a limited number of therapists, we need to step back and look at the whole system and embrace the use of digital tools. So for example, we have therapists in 50 states, and we serve people who are living with depression or anxiety, but we also have coaches. And we do, you know, we do, we do mental health coaching in addition. So, you know, imagine a system where physicians practice at the top of their license, therapists practice at the top of their license, coaches, nurse, nurses, they practice at the top of their license. And then you have digital tools, like we have digital therapeutics in our app, and then you have bots that do the rest and, and audit you automate as much as possible so you can serve as many people as possible and you bring the providers in and let them do the best they can and you know enable them to practice at the top of their license so we, we we don't have we have to scale and the payers i think have to embrace this the, the notion of using these digital tools to reach people and provide access to a broader population especially with social determinants too and Stephanie, I think um, the, the analog to, I love your coach example, um, we actually see paramedics 
as being the, the unsung heroes of the revolution of high acuity care into the home because um, they complement the nurses and the physicians that work in the model, sort of being the, the eyes and ears and the hands in the home, tethered to telemedical physicians to provide that care in the home. Um, and that, that is a force, a force multiplier on the staffing that we have. Because mm-hmm. uh, there was a question in the chat about like, you know, we have a national nurse shortage. How does that happen? So w- this, this all supports that. One is you can bring force multipliers like super paramedics into the home to provide high acuity care. Number two is you can fix the geographic issues. So in the old model, if you had a patient, take Winji's example, right? You have a patient in one part of Texas the nurse had to be in that part of Texas. Now with these efforts, that nurse can be in a different part of Texas or even a different state. Uh, we have one customer that's using nurses in a command center in Florida treating patients that are in the hospital in their home in Wisconsin. And then the third piece, Stephanie, to your point, is the technology, not to replace those things that the nurses and the physicians were doing, but to, to supplement them and to allow them to, to focus on the human-to-human interactions mm-hmm. and not get in the way of that. Um, and Chris, to your point, what we see is this, this model, um, the highest performing patient satisfaction on HCAPs hospital for, for all our customers is their virtual hospital. And if the patients are more satisfied, the physicians and the nurses are more satisfied. And then you're sort of, you, that gets you into the whole joy of practice and, and reconnecting that which is going to help make this so much more attractive as it scales. I think what, first of all, thank you for front running the question in the chat. So that was great. Um, but second, second of all, I think um, one of the things that we consistently hear, certainly through COVID um, in, in our work, is that labor shortages have really been the highest source of heartburn uh, throughout this pandemic. And so um, solving for uh, for home health, when you're already talking about uh, labor shortage, when you're talking about burnout, um, I think creative solutions like scaling through tech, like leveraging community um, workers is absolutely critical. Um, the other thing I wanted to get to, and maybe um, Rami and Vijay could speak to this, is that in addition to labor, which appears to be kind of the hardest problem to solve for, another is supply chain. So I wanted to talk to you guys about how in your businesses you've um, thought through what a effective supply chain is for getting patients the resources um, and uh, drugs and other materials they need to be treated at home especially when you're talking about rural and hard to reach communities. Sure. I can, I can start and then please Rami jump in. Um, You know, I I will, I will second that as we as a system have made the transition uh, to the home and mass, this is, you know, one of the the cracks that, that was laid bare pretty early on um, was the lack of an effective home-based care supply chain. Um, You know, for so many uh, decades, as we've been thinking about getting resources to patients, that supply chain has been oriented around facilities, whether it's hospital facilities, post-acute facilities, other types of retail locations. Uh, and so the, the first shift is, you know, how do you get an effective supply chain uh, with both forward and reverse logistics to patients uh, in a way that we can deliver products uh, in a reliable capacity? And that's been a huge focus of ours um, 
developing with our partners the capabilities for nationwide distribution uh, with same day or next day abilities to deliver over 40,000 types of medical equipment and supplies to patients across the country uh, and leveraging technology-enabled logistics uh, to do so with a high level of fidelity um, such that not only patients but their care providers can have visibility and guidance into when the critical products they need are getting there. Uh, the, the other piece uh, that that requires is, of course, uh, an effective level of either remote or in-person support around education on those products and ensuring that uh, you know, patients and their family members have the guidance and support that they need uh, to manage uh, onboarding and adherence to those products. Winji made a great point in her discussion earlier around you know, some of the things that were laid bare uh, during the, the crisis in Texas, uh, that you know, the, the home-based situations that so many patients face are really quite divergent, whether you have a family member or a caretaker at home that can support that journey for you. And so um, through the combination of uh, a home-based care supply chain and then the remote support that sits on top of that, how can we increase the baseline of support that we can provide for all patients at home, regardless of, of, of what their conditions or, or what their home-based setup may be? And, and uh, such a great point that the getting of the goods to the patient at the right time with a lot of accuracy is so critical to enable this shift to the home. Um, you know, the other element, Al, Al Su from Sinai famously said a couple of years ago, he said, it's, it's easier to get uh, Chinese food in Manhattan than it is to get oxygen to my patient's home. And so, you know, what I think we all have to recognize is it is a dramatic retooling of everything we knew about home health for high acuity care in the home that's going to replace a, a hospital. Um, you're moving from a five-day-a-week, 12-hour-a-day model to 24-7. Uh, nowhere that is that harder, not just for goods and, and folks like Vijay figuring out how do I get you know, DME there uh, on a Sunday afternoon in front of Pre President's Day weekend, but really the people that need to get in the home with the reliability that the provider who puts in that order for an X-ray or for an infusion knows with as much certainty as she does in the hospital that it's going to show up in the patient's home. Um, and so we, we've been working with great partners around the country to completely retool home health to provide this high acuity care in the home. And even though it's care in the home, it looks nothing like traditional home health. And I think the first step as an industry, we have to recognize that and not pretend that we can take current capabilities, current systems, uh, and expect them to deliver high acuity for complex patients in the home. Just one, one point on that, Rami, which I think is a fantastic one, is ultimately, as we make this paradigm shift, rebuilding that confidence that providers have, that discharge managers have, that they can safely discharge a patient to the home and they will be reliably served, right? Because you know we hear it from, from so many folks on the front lines, whether it's discharge managers or case managers, say, you know, I don't feel comfortable discharging the patient at this time because I don't have the confidence that the supplies, the resources, or the, the clinical support is going to be there to catch them at home. And it's ultimately, you know, uh, driving a new set of operational reliability for some of, of, of the things, as you noted, that can be the most complex. I mean, we, we have seen it really acutely in many of the markets that we've been operating over the last two or three months of this year. Um, the huge needs that patients have been having for uh, oxygen and other respiratory equipment and supplies, certainly spiked by the second wave of the COVID pandemic. And, uh, you know, we are in a, in a situation as a country where we have been seeing 
uh, a shortage uh, in the inventory of, of those uh, pieces of equipment and supplies and also the capabilities to get them to patients. And so it's really continued to exacerbate the challenges that so many folks across the system have been facing. And ultimately, you know, it is our responsibility as, um, as organizations that are looking to drive the stability and reliability of those supply chains uh, to ensure that both patients and providers can have that confidence in order to make that shift. And, and those supply chains, Ellen, to your point, can't just be in urban areas. This cannot be an urban-only solution. Otherwise, we'll be having panels about health equity um, because some of the most underserved are the ones who most need the ability to take the hospital in their home. Um, so we have a partner, as I said, who's been looking at doing this in, in rural Wisconsin, um, a couple other states coming up for us in rural areas out in the West. There was a question in the chat about South Africa. Um, these are global solutions that we're all developing. That, that need also to be tailored to, um, you know, those, those you know, uh, rural and extreme rural environments. Uh, and I'll just make another shout out for paramedics as the superpower that we have uh, collectively to be able to deploy into those rural areas, um, that when you tether them the right way to physicians in a command center, you enable them with the right technology, there's the right monitoring equipment in the home. There's so much that we could do out in rural areas that's extremely exciting uh, to bring, you know, high acuity hospital care uh, into the home. So it can't only be an urban solution. That's great. And actually, um, I think maybe a nice segue into just a general conversation about risk, because I think we've talked about kind of two key business model risks so far, which would be labor and supply chain, but would love, um, and don't, this is not aimed at anybody in particular, so anyone feel free to chime in. But when you think about, uh, taking a, um, a a patient that's already suffering from one condition, multiple con conditions, generally high risk, move them into the home, decentralize the workforce, decentralize the point of care, um, you're inherently assuming um, a number of new risks. So maybe can you walk us through some of those risks and then talk about how you've kind of um, conditioned your business models to absorb those risks, especially given that everyone seems to be a little bit uh, on a little, little bit different place on the adoption and acceptance curve for home health. Yeah, I mean, I think in our experience, it's the basics that are the absolute hardest. You know, uh, you know, we're all building technology companies, and you know, those. If, if you look at the healthcare technology media, those. You know, consistent talk about things like artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Like for a lot of our patients, they're just trying to get connectivity at home. Like it's, it, you know, we're not even at the stage of being able to 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 talk about anything more advanced than just can we actually get internet access for that patient in their own home. And, and as Rami said, the patients who most need a service like this are the least likely to have. Um, something like home internet. You know, we see in our population anywhere between 25 and 50% don't have any home internet. And it's disproportionately those who who actually really need the service who, who don't have it. And we see this from our, our healthcare systems. They don't care um, about fancy technology. They care, can it just basically work? And... Um, that's even more true when it's complex patients where you know you absolutely need it to work. It's not a choice. It's if it doesn't work, this patient has to come into hospital. 
and, and for technology companies who, especially those companies who who are um, not coming from a, a healthcare background, you know, it, it's not about building technology the way that you normally would for consumers. This is is fundamentally different, um, and it's about thinking through, you know, what is. Uh, you know, what, what one of our partners is is a US government body and they have a, an acronym PACE, which is, is primary alternate contingency and emergency. That, that's the, every plan they do ha, has a PACE plan. And it's the same thing. It's thinking through like every single thing must have four different options to make sure that you can address or give the maximum chance of addressing that patient um, and never giving up and never accepting that you just address the you know, the 50% of patients who do have internet. Because if you do, you you are massively reducing um, your ability to improve community health and, and improve overall outcome. And then maybe there's a... And actually, anything else to add to that first? Yeah, I, I'd like to add one point, which is um, the, the, the risks of doing the care in the home, I think, are very obvious. And everybody here, I suspect most of the participants, you know, acutely aware of, of those. Um, and you have to mitigate those. And, and as Chris is saying, making the technology very robust, making sure you have technology that uses the cellular networks, um, in, innovating on where you can start to use even satellite networks. That, that all has to be done. It has to be very robust. One thing I'd like to talk about is there are ways in which the home is safer than the hospital. And, and those are really important. So, so for example, falls, particularly within that you know, complex, frail elder population, a real issue within a hospital, in the patient's home, with, that they're used to how to get from the bed to the bathroom, they're used to the height of the bed, they, they are much less likely to fall in their own environment than they are in a hospital. And so there are some things that we shouldn't lose track of that are intrinsically safer in the home. Uh, the other element, there was a question in the chat about caregiver burnout. And as we move care into the home, what does that do for the caregivers, particularly family caregivers that, um, that are there? And I think there what's interesting, and this is one of the ways we mitigate the challenges of, of care in the home, is if you're starting with $1,500 of fixed cost that, that you no longer have because you're delivering the care in the home, $1,500 a day, you can do things like put a home health aid in the home for the first three or four days. And financially, that makes sense. And that gives some of that respite to the family members that are there and provides 24-7 eyes in the home to support the patient, to support the family. So I, I think there are lots of sort of home safety issues that we're all very tuned to that we got to mitigate. But we got some great intrinsics to, to work with. And we get the question a lot, well, you know, but, you know, if, if, if the home isn't safe, it's not safe and can't provide the care. But the other framing that our, uh, the clinicians who practice in our model have is, if they go to a regular hospital in five days, where do you think they're going? They're going back to their home. So let's spend this time helping them to remediate their home, to give them strategies in their home, um, because the alternative is still back in that home. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And I just wanted to, like, with COVID specifically, I think something we've seen is, is patients coming into hospital. They're COVID negative when they're admitted. They get to the point of being medically fit for discharge, but for a variety of different reasons, it takes you know twenty four or forty eight hours to get them home, and suddenly they get a nosocomial infection that you know they're COVID nineteen positive at that point, and 
yeah, you know, we've certainly seen a large number of patients who are unfortunately dying because they're catching COVID inside the hospital. And, and this was true pre-COVID from, from hospital-acquired infection. So, I, you know, I completely agree with, with, with Rami that the, the trade-off shouldn't just be a, an assumption that the hospital was safe in the first place because actually the, the data doesn't back that up. That's a great point. Um, yeah. And we've seen um, a lot of that in, you know, in various business models that have emerged over the last year about actually keeping the most frail uh, and most vulnerable patients specifically out of the hospital for that reason. Um, Vijay, was there something that you wanted to add? I think we may have lost Vijay. Oh, yeah, just, just wanted to build on uh, just wanted to build on uh, one of Rami's points uh, on the topic of value, right? And, um, you know, he had mentioned uh, how, you know, when you think of uh, arbitraging some of the, the high fixed costs of an inpatient hospital state enables us to invest in some of these, frankly, very common sense, um, you know, clinical resources and support alternatives for patients at home, like having a home health aid for an extended period of time to monitor their recovery, it relates back to you know Stephanie's point earlier about uh, enabling folks to operate at the top of their license, right? And I think what it comes back to is when we get out of this paradigm of fee-for-service billing, where the amount that as a care provider you can bill is entirely tied not to the level or the quality of service that's provided to a patient, but to you know the license of the individual that's providing that it really kind of unlocks uh, a lot of, of potential for, you know, thinking about how we can more effectively drive value to patients through the, the, the breadth of potential resources uh, and support that we can provide in a home-based setting. And I think that's where we're seeing uh, a lot of the quality improvements that, that Rami had mentioned. Um, the last thing I'd say, just coming back directly to your question, uh, Ellen, about how we're thinking about you know, value from a business model standpoint. Um, with our payer partners, we offer them holistic solutions uh, to coordinate uh, the end-to-end the -end, uh, medical equipment and supplies needs that they have across their membership. And, you know, uh, some of the more difficult and acute needs around uh, oxygen or ventilators or hospital beds in the home, all the way to, you know, ongoing supplies to manage uh, chronic conditions. Uh, and, and our way of, of, of driving that shift to values is by putting our fees at risk uh, to our outcomes, to our quality outcomes, um, to the impacts that we're able to have from a value standpoint. And what we find it does for our organization is it keeps our entire organization uh, from the top to the front lines really aligned uh, towards the outcomes uh, that we want for patients and for our partners. Um, and so, you know, we made that decision early on, and it's one that has helped us uh, to continue to push our, our organization forward and um, and many of our partnerships uh, to deepen uh, based on that shared commitment to outcomes and, and to value. I, I think that's a great idea in terms of kind of mitigating what might be an initial barrier to adoption is to basically just take a certain level of at least financial risk off the table. Um, so, well, Stephanie, I wanted to kind of circle back about a point that Rami made around caregivers. And it was a it was a point that you brought up, I think, at the beginning of your introduction when you talked about your father um, and a number of the co-occurring conditions that he had and uh, presumably about the role you played in helping him manage those. You know, if we think about um, the work that you're in, which is really managing a variety of chronic conditions, what, you know, what role does do digital health tools 
play in supporting caregivers? So we uh, we actually have caregivers in, in our app. Uh, so <clears throat> let's say we have somebody who is living with multiple chronic conditions and their family members, their caregivers could be in the app and monitoring how they're doing so they can see all the data. They can see the conversations with our providers. They can see where they are in their um you know, how they're doing on a daily basis with their uh, blood glucose or their hypertension or their weight or any of those measurements. And so uh, it's it's great to for the caregivers to be able to chat with the, uh, the nurse or the diabetes educator or the coach or the therapist to see how things are going. And so, you know, just having that, that support and that inclusive approach, because it's, it's complicated when, you know, you've got somebody that you're taking care of, but you want to know like how they're doing on a daily basis. You want to be able to just quickly get on your phone and log in and look. And so that's what we're doing. And, um, and do you find that that kind of effectively starts to relieve some of the burden that we all know that family and community caregivers are burdened by um, on a continuous basis? I think it's really important that these digital tools and remote patient monitoring are available to individuals so that they know how they're doing on a, on a regular basis. It's, it's hard for caregivers uh, to always have to call and check in, or they may miss a moment where they may, they may have to work, right? So they may not know how somebody's doing in a, in a particular moment of time. And if they can just quickly check on the app and see how their blood glucose or their hypertension or how they're doing, that makes a huge difference uh, in just being able to monitor how things are going. And there's so many, there's so much technology, there's so many devices now, hardware is proliferating. And so you're able to really measure uh, in the home how people are doing. And I think uh, I think Rami made this point earlier, like when you go in the home, you really are dealing with the social determinants. You're really seeing how somebody lives and you're understanding the food they eat. You're understanding, um, you know, the potential risk inside their environment. Uh, you're understanding where they could fall or um, how easy it is for them to access things. And, you know, that like we all talk about seeing doctors and getting medication, but the reality is like people's day-to-day lives are what's driving a lot of their conditions. And so that being able to really understand that through digital apps and technology and remote patient monitoring is really important. Stephanie, I, I wonder, one of the things that we've seen is by providing the care in the home, you're actually able to engage the whole family um, and that's a very different model. Can you talk about how with, with, with your model, you've seen it go from just patient provider to the whole sort of support system around the patient? Yeah, we allow um, the patient's family to be in the app and they can talk with, you know, with the providers. Uh, and actually, in some cases, we've had some uh, cardiac rehab patients and other folks who where the caregiver is actually just the one talking to our providers and doing the program and then helping the individual get there. Uh, so it really depends on the sophistication of the consumer and their family. But it is nice to be able to have everybody in one place and see everything that's going on and be able to text and communicate. Uh, so there's one view of uh, how the patient's doing. And maybe just kind of shifting gears a bit, um, you know, one one question would be, you know, if you talk to this panel, you might think, and me specifically too, you might think that most care is delivered in home, the train has left the station, uh, the hospital is a thing of the past. I think the reality is that 
Um, we're very, very, it's still very, very early days. Uh, we're very, very early on this kind of adoption and acceptance curve. So I wanted to think, talk a little bit about um, what are some of the barriers to broader adoption that you're seeing now that you anticipate, especially as we start to come out of the pandemic uh, and there's maybe a more openness to returning to our status quo. Um, Chris, maybe maybe start with you. Tell us about some of the, the barriers to adoptions that you see when you walk into uh, a health system, a payer, a life sciences organization. Yeah, so I think there's practical concern at, at, the, at the provider level about having to take responsibility. You know, this is a secondary care perspective, but having to take responsibility for patients who are no longer physically within the hospital in front of them. And, you know, the, the truth is that we find it difficult to keep an eye on patients who are 20 feet from the nursing station. So delivering healthcare to patients who are 20 miles from the nursing station it is somewhat uncomfortable for, for physicians and, and nurses. So I think that there's a, a concern about having that responsibility and the associated or perceived liability that comes with that responsibility for, for longitudinal um, care at home. And as we get better at acquiring data from the patient at home, that, that nervousness increases. There's a perception that if we have a piece of data on a patient, all of that has to be reviewed or, or you know, we are responsible for that patient. I think there's then the, the point I made earlier about the hospital as a whole. Um, you know, there's the CMIO of one of our partners who said to me that um, you know, they have always just seen themselves as a hospital and they've had to, at a, a business level, fundamentally reimagine themselves, that they're no longer just this, this institutional bricks and mortar facility that they deliver healthcare now along the entire continuum of care. And that's a complete philosophical shift for them that's necessitated a complete change in how they approach hiring, who they partner with, the financial models that they're, they're creating with their payers, um, all because they see, you know, if they don't do that, if they don't reimagine themselves, that they aren't going to exist in 10 years they're going to lose out to health systems coming into their, their local markets who are offering more longitudinal um, preventive-based healthcare services in the home, that that's what their consumers are demanding. And certainly COVID, the, the thing I think will be most lasting from for COVID is consumer demand from services at home for, for many of the reasons that, that all of the panellists are talking about. And, you know, that, that competition... I think will will force the hospital systems to reimagine themselves. But it is a it is a journey, and I would still go back to the point that I made earlier, which is, you know, we can talk about wholesale shift of healthcare to home, but a lot of healthcare providers are still just trying to provide basic safe care right now and get through the day, um, and it is a journey that we all have to go on together. And Chris, maybe what do you think as an entrepreneur? is within your control to help uh, ease, I think, folks' minds around some of the risks? And what do you think, you know, are is basically out of your control? Either the system you're speaking to hasn't gotten to the point where they've reimagined what, uh, what their 
new role is in the community or the financial incentives just aren't there? You know, what is within your control? What seems to be exogenous? And I, I guess our, our view, my view is that we have to work hand in hand with those providers, with those nurses, with those care managers and the hospital system as a whole to share the expertise we've built and work hand in hand to design, deliver and measure those end-to-end clinical models, but also recognise that many of those providers are, you know, my, my other half, Joanne, is an ICU physician. And, you know, honestly, you know, she cares more about just basic things like can she even log into the EMR? You know, so it's like when we start talking about all this stuff, she's like, I, I don't really give it. I just want to, be able to log into my EMR each day and I find that hard. Um, so I think it's about recognizing as, as suppliers, as vendors, as companies that are partnering, that they do have these basic issues that we have to work with them on and try and deliver the best possible experience and keep pushing to provide the best possible experience and really own um, as, as partners making it work for them at the front line as well as at the executive level and making you know their jobs and lives easier as well as the, the patient's lives. So basically what you're saying is continue to move the boulder up the hill, but not make their day-to-day any more complex. Well, I mean, I, I like to think culturally, you know, the the people who sign our checks as a company are not the people who use our product each day. Um, and I think you see this with some of the EMRs. You know, which physician has ever said that they like their EMR? But, you know, the, the healthcare executives love it. And why not? It's an amazing billing tool. But it makes the lives of their frontline users hell. And I, I think that's not good enough. I think we have to deliver the best possible experience to frontline users. We have to make their lives easier. And that brings them along on that journey and makes the whole shift um, easier in the long run. I think um, I think we're going to see that you know the the leaders like Winji, who was awesome, and others that are sort of driving this through. They know their systems way better than we do. They'll come up with the approaches. I think to solve a lot of those tactical provider issues uh, that are real that Chris is, is touching on. Um, I think the the macro to your point, Eleanor. What are the obstacles at, at a macro level? Again, Winji said it beautifully. The home is one answer. It's not always the answer. So, you know, we believe high acuity care that replaces a hospital, 20 to 30% of the patients who are in a hospital should have that care in their home. Um, not 100%, but 20 to 30%. And the obstacles to that, I think, are, are a mac- one micro, one macro. At a micro level, we're all familiar with the importance of reimbursement, supporting and following innovation. This is, area is no different. I think we've been given a gift by CMS acknowledging this and paying for it in a way that's site neutral that will really catalyze the the payer industry the regulatory industry to follow so so that one i see the path i think the the macro one um, that we're starting to see some very innovative solutions on is we have five thousand hospitals in the country if 30 percent of those beds are going to become beds in patients homes so we're going to now have 300 million beds that we're using what do we do with those fixed costs with those assets um, that to repurpose them in a way that's adding value to us as a society and making the math work for the hospital systems that are going into this. Um, and a few folks are starting to do some very innovative things. But I think for, for this to explode and really take off a la Amazon, 
the, the two big obstacles, one is are the, the payers, and there's a lot of momentum there, and getting really creative about what you're going to do with the fixed assets of these hospitals that are no longer required because you have 3 million hospital beds uh, across the country now. That's a great point. I think we've thought a whole lot about that, especially coming out of COVID, which is um, especially when you're talking about hospital systems that have already been taken a significant financial hit in response to COVID. How can they be more creative about their existing CapEx, plan CapEx? So I think that's a, a wonderful point. Um, with a few minutes to go, Vijay and Stephanie, any other barriers that you can that are keeping you up at night as you think about continuing to build a business in a very emerging space? You know, I, I think the move to value-based care is really important and everybody's talking about it, but we're not doing it fast enough. Uh, and, and so I think we've all been talking about all morning about how it's not just the doctor, it's the nurse, it's the EM, you know, the EMS provider, it's the, uh, therapist, it's the coach. Like we really need to look at the whole system. It's the caregivers. Like we really need to look at the whole system that's helping the patient and move to a value-based care model as aggressively as possible. And CMS is trying to push some of this and, and, but we need to do it faster. So. Yeah. Last word. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I would just build on some of the comments that have been made that, uh, you know, as many stakeholders are emerging out of what has been such a challenging and intense and complex period with COVID, uh, I think a lot of it comes down to prioritization. Um, you know, what are the efforts, uh, the partnerships, the initiatives uh, that will be top of mind for these organizations going to the next year, given the breadth of surface area that they have to cover and given the changes in many ways to networks, to business models, to clinical challenges. Um, I think we have seen, and I think all of us here have seen uh, really a sea change uh, over the last year and over the last few years um, in the way in which many of these stakeholders, health plans and hospital systems are prioritizing these efforts, are prioritizing the shift to the home. Coming into COVID, probably a top five priority, you know, coming into this year, probably a top three priority. Um, but I think that's the main focus is, you know, uh, prioritization amongst the, the full breadth of, of things that these organizations have on their plates and continuing to accelerate and drive that trend uh, to drive more holistic value to, to patients and stakeholders more broadly. Well, great. Well, we have reached the bottom of this hour, um, but I wanted to first um, thank DHIS and our sponsors for hosting uh, this event. Um, I also want to thank our panelists for sharing their thoughts and expertise. It was an extremely interesting, vibrant discussion. It's exactly what I hoped for and expected. So thank you for delivering. Um, and I'd like to thank everyone for joining us for today's event. So um, please stay healthy and be well and see everyone soon. Mm -hmm.